Bayfield's Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, Laugh Again. In this series, which is a study in the book of Philippians, we'll be looking at how our lives can be different. This week, lead pastor David Fossil points out that within the pages of Philippians are some very practical, personal, and positive words. Listen as Pastor Dave has us look closely at how we see other people and shows us that we need to look for the best in them. Would you agree that watching people or hearing people laugh uncontrollably makes you want to laugh? Would you agree with that? You, you, you watch someone and they're, you know, they're, they're just laughing so hard. They're crying. They're holding their stomach. They get on their knees. They start snorting. Snot starts coming out. You know, you don't know what they're laughing at, but it makes you want to laugh, right? That's why sitcom producers have this thing that they call laugh tracks, right? Because a, uh, a, an actress or an actor can say what you and I would consider to be a fairly average or lame joke, but they have the laugh track on there, and it makes us, by hearing the laughter, want to laugh. I was actually talking to Vince earlier. We're thinking about adding that to the Sunday morning sermons, of just having a laugh track and increase the value of, the, of the, 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 the jokes. We are starting a brand new series today called Laugh Again. And what it is, it is a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Philippians. You may not know this about me. Uh, but studying a book of the Bible, verse by verse by verse, and going through all the chapters, is actually my favorite way to not only study, but teach God's Word. I think it, it may even be the most healthy way to study God's Word, because what you do is you end up going through the book, a book of the Bible, and it gives you a whole picture of what that author and what God is trying to communicate. Uh, moreover, it forces you to look at verses and address issues that we wouldn't normally address necessarily on a Sunday morning. So I, I'm telling you, we're starting the series. We're going to take a little break and Easter, have a fun series and start it again. We're going to have a, a total of about 10 or so weeks in the book of Philippians. There will be some weeks where we get to a particular theme or topic. And, and you might be sitting here going, why are we talking about that this morning? Right. And the very simple answer is because it's the next 10 verses in our study. And so it really gives you a full picture and understanding um, of what we're doing. I want to encourage you. You may really want to be on the ball. Start reading it on your own. Start reading ahead. You know what's coming next. And if you really kind of want to get the most of it, pick your favorite verse from each of the four chapters and memorize it and watch how God really soaks it into your brain and into your soul. If you have a Bible, turn to page 1179. Grab the study guide that's in your program, Philippians chapter 1. As you're doing that, let me give you a very quick intro to the book. There's three things you need to know about the book. Number one is that it's very personal. It's a personal book. Paul writes the book of Philippians to his favorite church, the church of Philippi. Uh, when you read through the story, you clearly see that his best friends go to the church at Philippi. It is, it is his most favorite experience. Um, and, and when you, uh, you, you, you get that feeling that the whole book, by the way, of Philippians is nothing more than a very long thank you note for a gift that they have sent him. That's the book of Philippians. And he writes it to his best friends at the church of Philippi, this church. It's also a very practical book. When someone asks me, I'm just starting to read the Bible, I just got saved, or I'm really getting serious about Bible reading, what should I read? 
What should I read? I think it's always funny. That normally they come to me after they, they I'm just going to start at the beginning. You know, they read Genesis. That's pretty fun. And then they read Exodus and that's pretty good. And then eventually they get to Leviticus and they're like, <laughs> you know, they start losing their faith because it doesn't make sense and everything. I always, I always tell people, what should you start reading? And, and I always tell them the same things. Either read one of the gospels. Okay. The story of Jesus or read the book of James or read the book of Philippians. Because what you will find, even if you start reading it from a devotional perspective, that it's one of the most easily understood books. You can apply it very, very quickly. He's very direct and upfront. And that's what you're going to find in the 10 or 11 weeks we're going to be in it. Very helpful, very practical advice on learning to really laugh again. Okay. Uh, the last one is that it's positive. That's why the title of our series in four chapters. Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 17 times, 17 times. It's a big deal to him. Um, I know uh, Terrence already mentioned to you about our 411 thing. If you're new, I hope you'll come back. We got some fun snacks back there and everything. I, I mentioned this because uh, what we're going to do is one of the things I'll, I'll talk to you about the values of this church, which is what gives us our personality. Did you know one of our values as written in our document is that last one right there? To be positive. We actually stated a little bit different. I think it says something like embrace fun and humor. We say that not based upon the personality of our staff or because we like to goof off and have fun. No, it's because we actually believe what God says in his word and particularly in the book of Philippians. We believe that Christians should be. We should be the most positive and most joyful people at our places of work and at our schools and in our families and in earth in, in, in general. And the reality is that that's not always true, is it? A lot of us can be very grumpy uh, or we have the mistaken idea that if you're godly, you're serious. Serious. I don't laugh at anything. I'm serious. I'm not sure I see that in God's word. In fact, I see quite the opposite. And we're very, very serious about God, but we we're meant to enjoy life. And so basically what Paul's going to do in this book is he's going to teach you to laugh again. The reality is that some of us aren't really doing that much lately. Life's been tough. And how do we do that? How do we enjoy uh, life when the circumstances of life are seem to be beating us up? Uh, week one, what Paul's going to do, if you look at your study guide, is he's going to talk to us about what is rather obvious is we've got to figure out a way uh, and learn to invest in relationships and build friendships. Don't we instinctively know this? Every survey I've seen on this USA Today or whatever, uh, what, what do you need to be happy? It's always the top. The top three answers are always reasonably wealthy, health and friends. We already know this. We know that part of enjoying and getting most out of life is relationships and friendships. And yet I'd like to suggest as we get going, we as a nation and as a society aren't doing that great of a job at it. And this is not just me saying this. I want to share with you um, some statistics that come from a book called Bowling Alone. A guy from Harvard writes it. And from a sociological perspective, he talks about relationships and friendships. Let me share with you some of the statistics. Um, playing cards with friends is down 21% in America. Of course, you know that the activity of playing cards is not about whether you're playing, you know, poker or uno or five crowns or whatever it is you like to play. It's the activity of sitting around a table and having a relationship with people and talking to them about life while cards are getting handed out and making fun of people and laughing and all that fun of stuff. That's what it's about. It's down 21%. 
Evening with neighbors is down 33%. Having your neighbors over to the house. Scripturally, we're told to love our neighbors. The reality is we don't even know their names. That's the reality for most of us. I know of a pastor that kind of got convicted about this and decided to, uh, you know, invite some neighbors over for some burgers or whatever. First two people he went to, neighbors of his, hey, why don't you come over and have some burgers? They're like, why? <laughs> and then they asked, do you sell Amway? <laughs> people, this is just not normal for people to hang out together anymore in the neighborhood, right? Um, family dinners down 34%. The reason for that, number one, is the increased busyness of teenagers, not just adult anymore, but teenagers with homework and activities and sports and so on and so forth, um, and the increased programming on TV. Because we are most likely to sit in the living room and watch the TV than we are to sit around the table and, and actually have a meal together and talk. Down 34%. Having uh, friends over, down 45%. Sociologists call this cocooning. And what it is, is it's the idea that in our brain, uh, we say to ourselves over and over again, I'm busy, I'm tired, I've had a long week, which is true. And the easiest thing to do is, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to order a pizza in or pick something up on the way home and stay home with my spouse or family and kind of do nothing, veg out, which is nothing wrong with that. But when you do that week after week after week after week after weekend after weekend and you never have friends over, what ends up happening is it ends up actually affecting how you feel about life from a relational standpoint. I haven't even got into what this book says about this idea of fellowship and community. It refers to us as a family, which implies relationship. Honestly, be honest with yourself. When's the last time you had friends over to the house? For no reason. Just for no reason. The, the problem is, is that we aren't prioritizing as much as God's word says we should prioritize this. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Uh, look at this next one. The average American has only two close friends. Now, understand, we have acquaintances, people we barely know. We have casual friends, people we bump into more or less. And then we have close friends, right? And then we, you know, we have like our spouse, the most intimate friend. But you, you don't have to have a ton of close friends. But the issue is, uh, an average American has only two friends down from three in 1985. I don't know what this dude did, but he got voted off the island and we're down to two, <laughs> right? And, and then it now progresses a little bit further. Last statistic, this is probably the most sobering one. 25% of Americans have no one to confide in. This is what people point to as one of the primary reasons for the rise in popularity when it comes to counseling and therapy. Now, you know me. You've heard me say it before. I'm a believer in that. I think that's what some of us need to work and process through some very serious issues. But why it's even more popular than maybe it even needs or should be is because in years gone by, a quarter of the population, when they would have an issue or problem, would sit down with a friend and talk through an issue. But now, 25% of us don't even have one person to confide in, so our only alternative is to sit down with a counselor. Here's all I'm going to say. You know that relationship building and friendship is important. And what Paul says, you want to learn to laugh again? you got to put a little more oomph into this. you got to put a little more energy into this. So let me give you some ideas is basically what he says. Four things. If you're jotting down notes, here's the first thing you need to write down. To improve and build strong friendships is choose to see the best in others. 
choose to see the best in others. He starts out the book, Paul and Timothy. I'm going to get to Timothy down the road, but he happens to be one of Paul's top two, top three friends, right? People he confides in, people he builds his life into, people that encourage him. Timothy, super guy, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. So I'm sending a thank you note to the entire church and the, and the leadership board and everybody on staff. That's how he starts. Verse two, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse three, that gives it the first point, which you see also on the screen. I thank uh, I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank God every time I remember you. Now, your first instinct should be, oh, this is one of those super churches I hear about. This is one of those super spiritual, fairy tale churches, awesome neighborhoods, crime rate is down in the city. This is where you want to live. Philippi, you want to go to this church, right? Because that's the only way he could sort of say it. Well, the problem comes when you start reading Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we're told the story of when Paul first arrives in Philippi and how he begins that ministry and plants that church. And what we discover is that um, there were quite some issues there. There were quite some issues. He was arrested. He was thrown in prison. They stripped him and beat him. Then when he was released and he started teaching and doing ministry, the ministry he did and the teaching he gave caused a riot in the city. A mob formed that tried to kill him. And eventually they got him out a back alley. He was kicked out of the city. And I'm like, Paul, this is just me being honest. Uh, How can you possibly say, I thank God every time I remember you after reading Acts chapter 16? And Paul would say, you know why? Because one of the criteria for learning to laugh again is, is choose to see the best in others. It's not that you ignore the bad, you choose to see the best in others. My guess is that many of you guys don't recognize this man right here. Let's put him up on the screen. His name is Roy Robertson. He's had a tremendous impact on Christianity in the United States of America. He's one of the co-founders of a, a ministry called Navigators. Navigators it produces discipleship and spiritual growth material. It, it is just incredible. If you want to look it up online, it's like a 12 to 18 month book you go through and study. It's fabulous. Billy Graham has worked with Navigators and, and, and Roy Robertson. Roy tells his story and he writes his biography. And uh, one of the things he talks about is something that happened to him when he was at Pearl Harbor the day before it was attacked. And I want to read his story and what he says and then give you one quote. Let me read what he says. He says, my ship, the West Virginia, was docked at Pearl Harbor on the evening of December the 6th, 1941. A couple of guys and I left the ship that night and attended a Bible study. About 15 sailors sat in a circle on the floor. The leader asked each of us to recite our favorite scripture verse and comment on it. Each sailor shared, but I sat there in terror because I couldn't recall a single verse. I I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church three times a week, but I couldn't recall one single verse. Finally, I remembered John 3.16. I silently rehearsed it in my mind. The spotlight of attention grew closer as each sailor in the circle took his his turn. And then the sailor next to me, he recited John 3.16. He took my verse. As I commented on it, as as he commented on it, I sat there in stunned humiliation. In a few moments, everyone would know that I could not recall from memory even one single verse. 
Later that night, I went to bed thinking, Robertson, you're a fake. At 7.55 the next morning, I, awakened, I was awakened by the ship alarm, ordering us to battle stations. 360 planes of the Japanese Imperial Fleet were attacking our ship and the other military installations. My crew and I raced to our machine gun emplacement. But all we had was practice ammunition. So for the first 15 minutes of the two-hour battle, we only fired blanks, hoping to merely scare the Japanese airplanes. And he wraps up this story and he asks this question. As I stood there firing fake ammunition, I thought, this is how your whole life has been. Firing blanks for Christ. And I would want to ask you, how about you? Are you firing blanks for Christ? When it comes to living for Jesus Christ, when it comes for standing for him, are you really accomplishing that or are you firing blanks? When it comes to being serious about reading God's word and being filled and about committing your life to prayer, are you really doing that or are you just firing blanks? When it comes to obeying the command that he's given you to share the gospel and the good news with people you work with and go to school with, are, are, you, are you really doing that or are you just firing blanks? When it comes to the purpose of the book of Philippians, learning to laugh again, to live with joy, and the specific first point that we are talking about this morning, do you see the best in others or are you just firing blanks? It's a big deal. Here's the lesson that Paul's really trying to teach us in verse 3. First principle, learn to remember the best and forget the rest. That's it. Remember the best and forget the rest. God brought some of you here to hear just that. Now, please don't mishear what I'm trying to teach you. I'm not asking you to deny hurt. I'm not asking you to excuse others. I'm not asking you to pretend that something isn't true. Oh, some, some of you have had horrible things happen to you, but you can still make a choice. You can make a choice to emphasize people's strengths. You can make a choice to focus on the good of others. The second thing he says is you need to learn to practice positive praying. Learn to practice positive praying. And he says in verse four and verse five, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You do know that the quickest way to change a relationship from good to bad is to start praying for them. You know that, right? Because that person can ignore your advice. They can refuse your act of kindness. They, they can decline your dinner invitation. But they are powerless, literally powerless with prayer. Things change when you pray. And he says, you want your relationships to get better? Pray. Are you praying for those that are closest to you, that those that mean the most to you, your friends, your family? Are you praying for them? This is a big deal. One of the little details in this verse that I like is how he's, in all my prayers, for all of you. In other words, every single prayer and the whole group of you. Now, why I find this fascinating is because in chapter 4 of Philippians, we read that there were some people in the church that were not that fun or easy to get along with. And yet he's still able to say this. He's still able to say this. Now, a little suggestion, when you start to implement this, you best know what to pray about. Because if you start just praying for whatever, you might make things worse. Let me give you an example and an illustration. 
Someone sent me this story. Let me just read it to you. It says a man was sick and tired of going to work every day while his wife just kind of stayed at home. He wanted her to see what he went through every day. So he prayed, dear Lord, I go to work every day and put eight hours in while my wife merely stays at home. I want her to know what I go through. So please allow her body to switch with mine for one day. God, in his infinite wisdom, granted the man's wish. So the next morning, sure enough, the man awoke as a woman. He arose, cooked breakfast for his spouse, awakened the kids, set out the school clothes, fed them breakfast, packed their lunches, drove them to school, came home, picked up the dry cleaning, took it to the cleaners, stopped at the bank, made a deposit, went to the grocery shopping, then drove home, put away the groceries, paid the bills, balanced the checkbook. He cleaned the cat's litter box and bathed the dog. It was already 1 p.m., So he hurried and made the beds, did the laundry, dusted and swept and mopped the kitchen floor. He ran to school to pick up the kids and got into an argument with them on the way home. He set out cookies and milk, got the kids organized to do their homework, then set up the ironing board, watched TV while he was ironing. Then he washed the vegetables for salad, breaded the pork chops and snapped the fresh beans for supper. After supper, he cleaned the kitchen, ran the dishwasher, folded the laundry, bathed the kids and put them to bed. At 9 p.m., he was exhausted. And he went to bed where his spouse wanted to make love, which he managed to get through without complaint because he was really tired. (laughs) I guess that's honest, right? The next morning he awoke and immediately knelt by the bed and said, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I was so wrong to envy my wife's being able to stay at home all day. Let's trade back. The Lord in his infinite wisdom replied, my son. I feel that you have learned your lesson. I will be happy to change things back the way they were. But you'll have to wait nine months because last night you got pregnant. (laughs) You best know what you're praying for because you might make things worse. Now, in verse 9 through 11, Paul actually prays. Some of you, that's all you're going to remember this morning. That's what makes us. In verses 9 through 11, he actually praise for them let me show you his prayer let's put it up on the screen and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of christ that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through christ jesus to the glory and praise of god what what i am interested in as i read this and i think about this is what do i pray for what do you pray for the most important people in your life you know who i'm talking about your family your kids your closest friends what do you pray for because what we tend to pray for is we tend to pray for things like, I hope they get that promotion and, and, and I hope everything works out with that thing at school. And I hope that you know, we're praying comfort things. I hope that they, you know, they, they find a, a spouse and I hope that they, you know, they get into that college and, and I hope that we're, we're praying those kind of things. I hope that illness that they have goes away. They're bad, they're bad knee, they're bum back. You know, we're playing that kind of stuff. By the way, none of those pra- nothing wrong with those prayers. Except one thing, they're not in verses 9 through 11. None of them are 9 through 11. Paul says, you want, you want to know what you should be praying for? The most important people in your life? He says, let me give you three suggestions. Here's what I mean. Let's put it on the screen. First of all, pray that they would mature in their love. That they would mature in their love. He prays that their love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. One of the mistakes that we make in our culture and our society is assuming that love is only something you feel in the heart. 
And Paul would say, it's, it's part of that, but it's also something you think in your head. That you would grow and mature in knowledge when it comes to love. Would you agree that sometimes the most loving thing to do isn't always the most obvious thing to do? That's what he's saying here. He, he, he asks that, that, that they would grow in moral wisdom. One of the things you're going to realize very, very quickly in life is it's not about black and white. It's not about good and bad. It's not about evil and holiness. Many times life is about trying to determine and distinguish between what is good and what is best. In fact, sometimes what is good gets in the way of what is best. And that's what Paul says. I want you to discern and be able to identify what is best. Because there's a lot of good things out there. But it may not be the best thing for you. Have discernment. The ability to have moral wisdom. And then this last thing, he, he, that, that, that their life would be characterized, that they would live for God's glory. That would be a driving force in your life. Now, you might just think, what, is, what drives your life? Just think about, what do you get up for in the morning? What drives you? We're going to come back to this at some point in time because it becomes one of the most critical components of really being able to laugh again and enjoy life. But for the moment, let me just break it down with you this way. Do you really understand what those two words in, in the bottom mean? Glory and praise. I don't know about you, but I grew up in church and I, I heard people saying it all the time. Praise Jesus. Glory to God. No matter what happens, your, your team scored a run. Praise Jesus. Glory to God. As they said it all the time. It, do you know what those words mean? Do you know what to do in order to glorify God? Isn't that the first part of the service where we do the singing? No, it's not. The first part of the service has nothing to do with glorifying God. It's all about praising. It has nothing to do with glorifying God. Let me explain to you the Greek word. The Greek word is the word doxa, and it literally meant to enhance someone's reputation. When applied to God, to glorify means to enhance God's reputation. Now, let's be clear. There's nothing you can do to enhance God's character. He's already good, he's already great, he's already holy, he's already all-powerful. There's nothing you can do or think or say that changes who God is, his character. But his reputation is something altogether different. Would you agree with me that God's reputation with those you work with and those that you live with in your family and those you go to school with, God's reputation doesn't always measure up to what is said about him in this book? Would you agree with me? Because many of the people that we are with in life see God as someone who's aloof and distant and arbitrary and someone who doesn't really care or is involved in my life. That you and I have an opportunity. You and I have an opportunity by the way we live our life, by the things that we say, by the way we respond to difficult circumstances and stress. When we leave our place of employment, when we walk out of our school or families for, for day's work, people will think in their brain because of you. You know that that Jesus or God, he, I guess he's different than what I thought because clearly they're having a, he's having a difference, making a difference in their life. Your actions, your words, your lifestyle can impact what other people think of God. That is what it means to glorify God. And it happens when you walk out these doors. And Paul says, when you are praying for those that are most important for you, 
It's okay to pray for that career. It's okay to pray for, for those relationships. In their life. It, but you best be praying that they live for God's glory. Because that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to really living for Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, third way that you build strong friendships is be patient with their progress. Be patient with their progress. Verse six, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, when does the God's work begin in you? When you embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The minute that happens, without even trying, God begins to work inside of you through his Holy Spirit. Being confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying there? He's saying God is not finished working on people. You've heard it said before, we Christians could wear a sign around our neck that says under construction. That's what we should be able to say. I want you to do that if you can real quick. Some of you got your Bibles. Just take your pulse real quick. See if you can find it. First service, there was someone in the back row that couldn't find it. They were very concerned. Find your pulse for a second. Can you feel it? You know, are you alive? You know what that means? God's still working on you. Here's what I need you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, chill out. God's still working on me. Okay, some of you were a little too forceful when you said that. It felt like you were getting something off your chest. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to believe that about others. Chill out a little bit. God's still working on them. It's not your job. It's God's job. Part of our mistake is that we judge others by how far they have to go rather than by how far they've already come. We focus on their fa- past failures instead of their future potential. This is a big deal for psychologists. They ta- talk about the power of, of expectations. This is this whole idea, and they've done research on this, that just your expectation of someone else, it happens especially from parents to children, just what you expect of them creates something in them that increases the probability that that actually will happen in their life. Just your expectation. True story. Former Miss America. You know how in the pageant at one point in time, they always ask some sort of question, life question. And the question that year was, when did you start to think that you could actually be Miss America? That was the question. And immediately she responded. She goes, oh, I know that without a shadow of doubt. I know exactly when that happened. She said, when I was a little girl, you know, we had this big yard out front and I'd normally be playing out front. And every day the mailman would come by and he would deliver the mail and put the mail in the box or he would hand it to us. And every single day the, the, the mailman walked by, he would always look at me and he would say this, how's my little Miss America doing? Every day he'd come the next day and he goes, oh, Miss America, that hair looks really nice on you. And he said, that was my nickname for the mailman. Little Miss America. And, and, and something clicked in my brain where I, I started to believe maybe I could do that. Maybe I could be that. The power of expectation. Frankly, it's one of the reasons why every morning uh, when either of my daughters roll out of bed, the first thing I say to them every single morning is, how's my little Miss Multimillionaire? <laughs> <laughs> Just... <no. laughs> Do you believe 
do you believe God is working on you? Most importantly, for our topic this morning, do you believe God is working on those around you? And chill out a little bit. One of the problems that we have, and and I will be talking more about this in the future, is that we have an if-then mentality. If they change, then I'll laugh again. And Paul says, no, that's not necessarily true. You've got to learn to laugh again and enjoy life, even though people aren't perfect. The last thing he says, I'm going to wrap up with this, is genuinely care for your friends. Verse 7 and 8, I don't have it on the screen. Look in, in, in your Bibles. It is right for me to feel this way about you, all, all of you, since I have you in my heart. Don't, he starts out, I have you in my mind. Then he goes on, he says, I have you in my prayers. And now he ends this passage just saying, I have you in my heart. Do you ever think of Paul as kind of a strict, cold, Marlboro man for Jesus? He's just tough. By the book. You know, I just. Apparently he's got feelings. He cared about these people. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see that word affection in verse 8? It is literally the word intestines or spleen. Literally. This area. Why? Because Greek culture did not believe that feelings resided in your heart. They believed your feelings came from your stomach. So on Valentine's Day, you would never send your boyfriend or girlfriend a little note that said, I love you with all my heart. You would never say that. Instead, what you would do is send them a card that said, I love you with my entire stomach. So let's go to hometown and dig out or something, you know. That's what he's basically saying. I've got this gut feeling about you. That's what he's basically trying to say. How do I do this? Let me just real quickly give give you three ideas. Number one, stick with them through the good and the bad. Stick with them. Middle of verse 7. Whether I'm in chains, in other words, even if I'm in prison, which is where he was at the time of writing Philippians, or defending and confirming the gospel, preaching at a big rally, and doing a book tour. No matter which one, you stick with me. Loyalty matters when it comes to friendships. It does. Um, and, and we all can think of or uh, that, that one or two people that are like that in our life. They, they've stuck with us. They, they, they're, they're right there, good and bad, thick and thin. You know, they're the kind of people that you can call uh, on, a, on a Friday night and say, I need you tomorrow morning on Saturday to help me move a piano or a couch. And they're like, oh, I don't want to, but I'll be there. Stick with your friends. Stick with those people and watch what it does to your relationship. The second thing that I want to encourage you to do is, is, is see them as Christ sees them. Right at the end of verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? He says that because human love wears out. I don't have enough to give. But if I start to see others and you start to see others through the lens of Christ, you start to see them how he sees them. It changes how you think about them. It changes how you feel about them. You find yourself wanting to give. You can't even help it. 
try to see people as Jesus sees them. Watch how it changes you. Watch how it even changes you. And and the last thing I want to encourage you to do is make sure you're always pointing them to Jesus. Whether it's friends of yours that are already believers or friends that don't know Christ yet, point them to Jesus. You know, I skipped over verses one and two very, very quickly because it's one of the, you know, kind of it's just the intro, right? But there's a ton of good stuff in there. I'll eventually get back to almost all of it. But look at verse two just for right now and then I'll wrap up. He says, grace and peace to you from God. We always want the peace. I'll take the peace. I don't want any more stress in my life. I want the peace that passes all understanding. I'll take that. The problem that many of us fail to understand is that there's an order to those words. You can't have the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. It's like a mathematical formula. The grace of God, well, what is that? It's, It's basically undeserved favor from God to you. The word grace represents what Jesus Christ did on the cross, forgiveness for your sins. The only way you embrace Christ is when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And then and only then do you get the possibility of experiencing peace that passes all understanding. Point your friends to Jesus when you're having conversations with them about issues in their life. And when you're giving advice, it best be bathed in this book. I'm not suggesting you got to quote verses left and right. But I'm saying make sure you are giving them advice and giving them words that reflect who Jesus is and what Jesus wants them to do. Not what you think that you want them to do. Point them to Jesus. Let me wrap up with this real quick and just give you a a, a last little nugget. I want to encourage you to take the initiative when it comes to friendships. Don't wait for them to call you. Don't wait for them to invite you over to their house. Take the initiative. And then I would say this, don't give up. It's too big a deal. And way too many of us in and outside of the church are living alone. We're living alone. Paul says, you want to laugh again? Invest in relationships. Invest in friendships. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. And I want to thank you for the difference it makes in our life. Father, I want to pray for those that are here today and they've they've had a tough week. They've had a tough month or even a tough year. They haven't much felt like laughing. I'm so grateful, Father, that you can give us joy in our life in spite of our circumstances. I pray that you would cement that into our mind and that we would believe that with our hearts. Father, you've given us something so simple to do today, to invest in friendships. As simple as it is, it takes time. It doesn't happen in one week. Father, I pray that we would be good friends to others. Others that sit around us here in in our church, that we would be a good friend to those we sit next to at work we would be a good friend to people we interact with whether it's our kids sports team or whatever but more than anything else as I as I wrapped up and studied I'm so thankful that you're my friend I'm thankful that you stick with us when we go bad 
I'm thankful that you point us to your Father. You are a good friend. But most of all, you're my King. We love you. Remind us to apply this as we leave here this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.